The purpose of this podcast is solely for patient education. It is not intended to evaluate, diagnose, treat, or cure disease. Views expressed are those of the podcasters and not their affiliate. Any medical questions or concerns should be addressed by the listener's physician or care provider. Listening to this podcast does not constitute a patient-physician relationship between the listener and the podcaster. We do hope the podcast can help enhance the listener's own medical experience. Welcome back to this week's episode of Everything Your Doc Wants You to Know, but doesn't have time to tell you. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform about health matters affecting adults. From latest research updates to tips on navigating the healthcare system and everything in between. Welcome back. I'm Kirsten. And I'm Lindsay. How's it going, Lindsay? Good. How are you? Good. Fun weekend this weekend. Yes. How are your, how's your body feeling? Pretty good, actually. So this weekend was the Fargo Marathon, and we were fortunate to get three teams from our internal medicine department together to compete on as relay teams in the full marathon. It was really fun. It was great. Yeah. I think um, all 12 of us had fun despite the cool, rainy weather, and right. it, was, it was a good experience. It was, and to have a uh, something that you're training for, um, even if it's just for fun, made you exercise, made you get out there and, and run leading up to, to this weekend. I agree, and whether you're doing it by yourself or doing it with a team, just having that goal is motivating to get out there. I think having a team definitely helps me, knowing that other people are going to be counting on me a little bit. Right, and definitely the morning of, because if it was just me, I probably would have canceled out with that rain. I agree, <laughs> I agree, yes. But we got that out, and it was fun. It wasn't so bad running in the cold rain. Exactly, exactly. When you stopped, that was <laughs> then that it was, was cold. when it was bad. Yes, but. yes. Well, this week we're talking about a topic that affects many people, insomnia. Which can mean many things, I think, you know, not sleeping a lot of the night, but is it you can't fall asleep or you have multiple awakenings and can't get back to sleep? Um, just poor sleep in general so that you, when you wake up the next morning, you feel you do not feel rested. Yeah, and I, I think this is, you know, something that affects all age groups, um, certainly common in our patient population from right. middle age to older adults and um, an issue that we end up discussing a lot. Um, there's... Maybe 30% of those 65 and older have sleep problems, but I would guess a lot of more people than that seem to have concerns about their sleep. I would agree. It's a conversation that we have at least once a day, if not more than that, with individual patients. And I think um, a, a large part goes to happens after retirement. So when you stop being on a schedule, you retire and you think, oh, I don't have to get up anymore at the same time. And if you don't keep a schedule, I think that's when a lot of problems start. But there's certainly lots of other reasons to, to not be able to fall asleep or have poor quality sleep. I agree. And it's interesting that you say that because I have a lot of patients who are approaching retirement who, you know, will be needing or using medication to help with sleep. And they kind of will say, well, hopefully in a year or two when I retire, I won't need anything anymore because then all of my stress will be gone and I'll be sleeping perfectly. And I would say it doesn't always pan out that way. Right. Yeah. So I think other things that can cause poor sleep um, can range from medication side effects to um, other psychological, psychiatric disorders like anxiety, depression. Yes, certainly things that are, you know, uncontrolled illnesses such as sleep apnea, even asthma or gastroesophageal reflux, which we commonly know as heartburn, 
those things can all affect sleep. Another common issue in our older population is the need to get up and go to the bathroom during right. the night. And that's so big if that if you're waking up three to four times a night just to empty your bladder, that's going to be hard to get good quality sleep. Let's talk a little bit about the medications or things that we're do, taking in um, that can ca- disrupt our sleep. Yeah, so um, even before medications, I would say commonly caffeine can be an issue for people. And I think many don't realize that the effect of caffeine really hangs on for a longer period than they might expect. Yeah, my recommendation to people who are having difficulty falling asleep is to limit caffeine to before noon. Yes, absolutely. And other guidelines have come out and said no no caffeine after 3 p.m. And I think that's okay, but there's probably some gray area there where you are maybe going to have that ongoing impact from the caffeine um, lasting until the evening if you are consuming caffeine in the afternoon. So definitely a good idea to limit that. Right. And, And alcohol, you certainly have to limit. It can... I know a lot of people use alcohol to try to help them fall asleep. And the problem with that is it doesn't allow you to get into the restorative sleep phase. Right. So a lot of people get the impression and alcohol kind of makes you feel relaxed and more sleepy. But as you just said, it doesn't result in high quality sleep. And so doing that on a frequent basis or a regular basis is actually going to make your sleep worse. Some other medications that can cause problems would be over the, several over-the-counter things. So often people take um, medications like cold, the common cold medications or um, decongestants, these kind of things. Some people, they help fall asleep and some people, they actually rev up and, and excite them so that they can't fall asleep. So it kind of depends on where you're at. Right. So the antihistamines are a good example of that where people will take them and many get really tired from them, but others will have kind of an, a counterintuitive response where they, like you said, are more energized or agitated right. almost and don't mm-hmm. sleep then at that point. Even, Certainly. Go ahead. I was going to say nicotine replacement and nicotine right. itself can make sleep difficult. Exactly. Yep. Lots of the antidepressants, several help you fall asleep, um, but several also can contribute to, to being awake and stimulation. Uh, inhalers, several of the inhalers that are common have excitatory properties. Certainly if you're on steroids, prednisone for any reason, those can of- often disrupt our sleep. And then, of course, the um, medications for conditions like ADHD are stimulants, and they will make it difficult to sleep. Sometimes we see people getting into a cycle where they're taking something to keep them awake during the day, and then they feel the need to have medication to help them sleep at night. And then the following morning, they're tired, and they need something to keep them awake during the day, and it gets to be a vicious cycle. Right. So... There's several um, common sleep disorders that can disrupt our sleep that are important uh, to diagnose properly by a sleep study. And uh, one of the most common is probably obstructive sleep apnea. Tell us more about that, Lindsay. Yeah, so it'd be um, your partner would, bed partner would claim that you're snoring or stop breathing. That's called apnea. It's when we have a pause in our breathing that doesn't seem normal. It lasts too long and it makes people's bed partner uncomfortable. Um, people who have obstructive sleep apnea typically snore. They wake up often with headaches. They wake up feeling unrefreshed. 
Later in the day, if they just sat down to read a book or if they're driving, they can often fall asleep very, very easily. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And there are different reasons for people getting sleep apnea. One is just that the tissues collapse in a certain way, blocking the airways when people are lying down. Um, and then there's also central sleep apnea, which is coming from the brain, which normally regulates breathing. So if you have any of those concerning symptoms, uh, then you certainly should let your physician know so that uh, they can get the proper study done. So there's sleep studies um, that are in sleep centers, but you can also do a preliminary at-home um, oxygen evaluation that is a little bit easier that can help rule in or rule out needing to have the full sleep study. Exactly. And fortunately, sleep apnea is treatable, um, and many people do very well with the treatment, which involves generally involves using a machine to create pressure and keep the airway opened while people are sleeping. Other sleep disorders, um, you know, there's narcolepsy, there's restless leg is quite um, common. Sleep hygiene, I would say, is just or inadequate sleep is right. kind of a, a very prevalent problem in the United States. Not so, it's, it's not truly a diagnosis, but it is uh, just inadequate sleep. And so what I think there's sleep specialists out there, what would they say is the proper amount of sleep? That's a good question. I think there are Studies suggesting different numbers, but most commonly would be in the seven and a half to nine hour range would be a good amount of sleep. I would guess that most Americans probably get less than that. Right. Um, And it's important for so many things. Um, If you're not getting that much sleep, then I think you should just have a good discussion with your physician, your primary care uh, providers, and and figure out what the root cause is and how how to um, work on improving that. And we'll talk about some of those things today, like sleep hygiene is an easy one, mm-hmm. and, and I think most of us probably don't do well with this. Absolutely, yeah. Maybe we should talk a little bit about... Um kind of the downsides to inadequate sleep. And there are specific things, specific problems that arise from um, sleep apnea, for example, versus just inadequate sleep. They all have their own side effects, but we can touch on each of those a little bit. Sure. So certainly sleep apnea can lead to uncontrolled hypertension or high blood pressure, um, difficulty losing weight, um, poor energy and concentration, certainly. Uh, but heart failure, atrial fibrillation, if you have untreated sleep apnea, you're at risk for all of those things. So yeah, it's actually quite a big deal because it puts extra stress on the heart when you're not taking in enough oxygen during the night. The heart has to work harder and then all of those things can occur that you just mentioned. But certainly if we're just not getting adequate restful sleep, um, our concentration will not be as good. I think there's there's studies out there that prove that you're at risk for motor vehicle accidents mm-hmm. um that you it's harder to deal with stress so you probably are more likely to have you know anxiety and depressive symptoms your decision making is not as good and so you're actually less productive even though you're spending more time awake possibly trying to do work it's actually less productive than if you would sleep more and um, try to get things done when during the a shorter wakeful time right so definitely sleep is important. What can we do for ourselves to get the, you know, we call it sleep hygiene, the appropriate sleep hygiene. Yeah, so appropriate sleep, first of all, takes discipline, especially if you're somebody who maybe doesn't go to bed on a regular schedule or like you mentioned before, that retired population who knows that you don't have to necessarily get up by a certain time in the morning. 
it really takes some discipline to make sure you're following a consistent schedule. And like you alluded to before, the um, having consistency and when you're going to bed and when you're waking really do help improve the quality of sleep that you're getting. And so, you know, picking a time every night that you think, okay, this is when I want to be sleeping by because I know I want to wake up at X time in the morning. And then planning a routine before bedtime so that you can help your body prepare for sleep. Right, and I think it's important to to limit the time in bed to a max of nine hours. So uh, whether you're sleeping or not, you got to get get up and get out. I think one of the main problems in our older adult retired population is they they say, "Oh, I didn't fall asleep till three, and I woke up at five, so I'm just going to sleep here now till ten in the morning." And then it just ruins it for the the following night because your cycle is is off. So you have to pick your your seven, eight, nine hours, whatever length of time you're going to pick that you're in bed and you have to go to bed at the same time and get up at the same time. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And so what does that routine look like? That sleep hygiene that we talked about for the hour or two before bed, what do you usually tell your patients? It needs to be a quiet time where you're not having stimulus from light. So, you know, tablets, TV, phones, those kinds of things. Um, you just need to be quieting down your mm-hmm. mind and your body. Yeah, and I'll usually tell my patients when you talk about screens, I will generally say, you know, at least two to three hours before bedtime, the screens need to go off. And that seems like a lot. And I know a lot of people kind of get into the habit of falling asleep in front of the TV at night, but it really does stimulate the brain. And so even if you're able to fall asleep, your sleep quality may not be as good if you are spending a lot of time in front of a screen right before you go to bed. I'll also generally tell my patients just to kind of develop a routine so that getting ready for bed, um, you know, whatever they do in the evening after they're ready for bed, maybe reading for a little while, doing something quiet, not with bright lights on, but again, something where it's fairly consistent so that they get into a routine. Their body knows. Yep, exactly right. This means we're shutting down now. Yep, exactly um, they say that if you're hungry, that you should have a light snack unless you have significant heartburn or gastroesophageal reflux disease, in which case that might be a bad idea. Uh, and certainly to, like we've talked about, avoiding the bright light in the evenings. Yeah. The other thing is, you know, we do recommend exercise every day. That can certainly help the body be physically tired when you do go to sleep. Um, however, exercising within two hours of bedtime can actually be very activating as well and make it difficult to, to sleep. Yep, so you have to fit in the exercise before two hours within your bedtime. They also, a lot of people actually sleep much better in cooler um, temperatures. So you certainly want to make sure that your bedroom is cool and dark. So if you need to get the, the blackout um Blinds, window coverings yeah, then yeah. you got to do that it needs to be dark and quiet and certainly if you have a lot of outside noise from causes from things that you can't control then the certainly white noise machines are very helpful um, and have been proven to be beneficial in that situation absolutely those can be really helpful yeah and you know i know many people who use those for their kids and that kids can be another reason for not sleeping well right. at night so the more you can do to help them sleep the better you will be sleeping as well Right. The other things that people say is if you don't fall asleep within 30 minutes and you don't feel tired, then you need to get up from your bed and go out 
uh, and do something soothing and quiet before you until you feel sleepy again and then try to go back to the bedroom again so right. the only thing you're supposed to do in your bed is sleep you're not per the specialist you're not supposed to watch tv or um read actually even in your bed you're supposed to do that in a different a different area and then come to the bed only when you're tired and ready to sleep right it trains the brain to know that when you're in bed sleeping is what you're doing and um like Lindsay said if if it's not happening then you can go do something else quiet i'll usually you know tell my patients you can if they enjoy knitting or reading again no no bright lights no screens if you're not sleeping just something quiet um coloring is great too one of those relaxing activities and then Mm -hmm. when you do feel tired going back to bed and i know a lot of people say when they lay down that's when they start thinking about all the things they need to do for the next day and worrying about things they didn't get done and so um you know, one cognitive behavioral strategy to to deal with that is to have a designated worry time or have a journal lying by your bed where you you worry about those things and say, okay, I'm done. Or you write them down in your journal and you close it and you say, okay, that was the time I got to worry. Now it's time to go to sleep. That's and that's a good way of, of compartmentalizing that instead of allowing that worry process to invade sleep and disrupt sleep. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. Something else that we will often recommend to patients is meditation. If they're really struggling to let go of those worrisome thoughts or deal with those, meditation can help kind of train the brain to to relax when it's time to relax. And it doesn't have to be something that you do before bedtime. But doing that, practicing meditation even for five or ten minutes a day can sure um, help your body get better at switching on and off or switching to and from that active state to a more relaxed state and then being able to sleep yeah and I know something that I was taught and I don't know if it was in medical school that I heard it or or where but if you're lying there and you're struggling to to relax to kind of head to toe squeeze the muscles for like 30 seconds and relax head to toe go through each muscle group till you get to your toes and then once you're done it's you know it's just out of out of your system you're relaxed and uh, so I think that's one effective approach if you feel tension or stress in the body. Yeah, I learned that in a health class years ago and found it to be extremely helpful. And just the act of going through different muscle groups, so squeezing your forehead for you know 20 seconds and then relaxing, mm-hmm. and then your facial muscles, that gets your brain focused on your body instead of focused on all those other thoughts for the day. And by the time you're done doing that, you are ready to go to sleep. It's a really helpful strategy. There's lots of imagery techniques where you can you can get um, tapes that'll talk you through it, or there's even really good apps. Um, I know there's a Calm app, and there's a there's one that's called CBTI Coach, which talks a lot about what we've talked about here, but will also give you um, some relaxation imagery and things to go through to help calm your mind. And the other thing that we will often recommend is that patients, if it's a really severe problem, patients can work with a therapist um, in the clinic to help just with sleep alone. We have some, uh, fortunately, our therapists have excellent training now and really are, they really provide benefit to the patients. And studies, head-to-head cognitive behavioral therapy, so going to a counselor to give you some ideas and techniques to help calm and go to sleep put up against the common medications for sleep, cognitive behavioral therapy actually is does just as well, if not better. 
Yeah, and the great thing with cognitive behavioral therapy is that you're not going to have side effects, whereas right. all of the medications that we use for sleep do have some side effects. And we'll, we can jump into those medications in a minute, but right. we wanted to talk about the other good things that you can try first that maybe are um, just little tweaks that you can make to your routine or your schedule that will help you sleep better without needing to go to the medications. I think the safest, you know, over-the-counter things, there's some, you know, sleepy time tea, or I often say melatonin, which is what the pituitary excretes for, from the brain uh, for the circadian rhythm, the sleep-wake cycle. And so melatonin it comes in, I think, generally three milligrams and five milligrams. And I say, you know, three to six milligrams is, is typically very safe. Um, some people do get more vivid dreaming with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and with melatonin, I will generally tell people to take it a little earlier than when they want to go to sleep. So even two to three hours before bedtime because it affects the sleep cycle. And so it takes a little time. It may make you feel a little more relaxed right when you take it, but it's not going to be putting you to sleep or having that full effect until a few hours after it's been taken. There's also blue lights, which can help, I think... um, Different aspects of sleep, if you get certainly in the morning, will help you get going in the morning. And then if you can do it sometime uh, mid-afternoon is often a good time so that you can get to sleep at bedtime. These are little things that will just work on your body's natural sleep cycle. Um, and again, will hopefully help you get into better quality sleep. And if you're somebody who has been, you know, having poor sleep hygiene so you've been laying in bed for 11 hours and getting up at 11 a.m because you didn't sleep all night then you really got to take a hard two weeks and pick your bedtime hours and go to bed and get out of bed in the morning whether you slept or not and it's going to be a rough day but you should not nap or if you do take a nap you should limit it to 30 minutes or less and, and go to bed again and really watch your caffeine um, and just go through a hard two weeks to get your body back in cycle and, and you'll really benefit in the end. Yep, absolutely. Well, should we move into the medications? <laughs> sure. So there are, if, if you're doing all of these things or you've tried all of these things and you're still really struggling with Medicaid or with sleep, excuse me, then um, you can talk with your clinician about medications. And like we said before, All of these carry some potential for side effects, but some of them can provide some benefit as well. The problem with how we've prescribed them in the past is they none of these were ever meant to be used every night for the rest of your life. Sometimes we go through hard, stressful times and we we need to use them for a short time, but we shouldn't start them with the idea that we're just going to use them forever because I think that's where we as prescribers did a disservice to our patients um, going back years, years ago, um, where we just started prescribing it every night and we've continued it. And, and that, that is a bad, bad on us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, um, you know, some of the medications that we kind of think of as beneficial for sleep actually result in worse sleep quality um, over time. And so things like um, diphenhydramine, which is commonly known as Benadryl, but is also present in some of those over-the-counter um, sleep Most. or cold medications. It may make you feel tired for a few nights if you use it, but in the long run, it actually um, is going to harm your sleep. And so it's not something to use on a regular basis. And it's, it's 
linked with lots of side effects, especially for the older adults. So when you may have tolerated it just fine in your 60s going through um, a rough time, if you're taking it into your 80s, you never know when it's going to contribute to that fall or to confusion and, and poor thinking as linked to, to those kinds of things and dementia. But falls, falls can be a dangerous thing when you're older and can lead to you know, hip fractures and other things that lead to a downward spiral that you want to avoid. Absolutely, yeah. And when I talk with patients about sleep medications, I will always ask those questions. And usually the answer is, oh, I haven't had any problems, no falls, no confusion. And the concern that I have is that can change at any moment, and we don't know when that's going to happen. Right. If you had some sort of cold or were a little dehydrated and took some other things with it, or if you were dehydrated and took it and it just your kidneys aren't functioning as well, then they're going to affect you differently, and you, you just don't want to take that risk. Absolutely. So, so what do you use, Lindsay, when you need to prescribe or when you decide it's time to prescribe something to help with sleep? Uh, I think if we've tried the melatonin, so if we've tried all of the sleep hygiene and over-the-counter things and cognitive behavioral therapy, um, if somebody also has some anxiety or depressive symptoms or low appetite issues, then a go-to is um, mirtazapine. Yeah, I use that one. Um, I think it's, like you said, effective in people, especially... Our older population who maybe has that struggles with the low appetite, a little bit of depression, and difficulty sleeping. It's a nice medication for that group of people. There's also a similar um, agent, Remelteon, which is generally thought to be safer. I've struggled with that one just because of cost. It's yes. a little bit better lately, but... Um, Right, and that one raises melatonin levels, so another option is just to take an over-the-counter right. melatonin supplement. And I haven't really had enough patients um, take Remelteon to know how they compare in terms of effectiveness, yeah. but it's expensive, so that's that's a struggle with that medication. Another one that I use quite often is, is trazodone um, at lower doses, uh, but certainly there was just a study that came out that showed it too was as common to have falls and confusion as Benadryl over-the-counter um, diphenhydramine. Yeah, trazodone is one that I generally think of as a little bit safer than some of the other sleep medications because it's not addicting right. like so many of them are. Um, it isn't thought to have as much of that morning right. fatigue and sleepiness or nighttime behaviors where you get up mm -hmm. and are sleepwalking and things like that. But it's still not a perfect medication for right. sure. Yeah. So yeah, trazodone, I probably use a little bit less often than the mirtazapine. Yeah. And some of the very common ones, Zolpidem, for instance, I have stopped prescribing actually recently. Yeah. And Zolpidem is Ambien, is commonly mm -hmm. known as Ambien. And what made you go, what made you stop prescribing it, Lindsay? Just the reports of people having odd behaviors and the high incidence of that, um, you know, eating, getting food out of the fridge and eating food or just doing other unusual behaviors in the middle of the night. Without awareness right. of those behaviors. Yeah. And I think that's also common with other medications in that class. So the other trade name or brand name like Lunesta would be one of them. Um, I feel like they work pretty similarly right. and I tend to avoid those because not only are they known to have um, those nighttime behaviors, they're also 
a little bit addicting. And so the body gets used to having them and then it's harder to sleep without them, harder to get off of them, um, and just risk of falls and confusion and things like that. I think the underlying thing is like any good thing in life, you have to work for it, right? You have to put in the work for good sleep often. Absolutely. And and it's worth it in the end. Yeah. Um, but taking a pill, it, just popping a pill isn't always the answer. And unfortunately, it was physicians prescribing it in the past that made made it seem like that was the like that the was okay good answer. That was the answer. Yeah, yeah. yeah that was the good answer so it was, it's not not your fault out there if that's what you've been doing because because that's how um, we operated in the past and it's just now coming out how probably very dangerous these things are and why we should put in the work for we can't take the easy way out and we need to put in the work right Another group of medications that um, were were used more commonly in the past would be the benzodiazepines. Right. And I think, that, like you said, that's kind of where this started. Um, they are effective at helping people feel sleepy and fall asleep, but definitely full of side effects and um, are very, your body gets used to them. They're very habituating. And so the longer you use them, the more le- higher your chances of having dementias. Yeah, yeah. So these are medications that I don't start for my patients. And usually if they are taking them, we'll have a conversation about how to get off and what else mm-hmm. we can do. And maybe we can jump to that part of the talk in a minute. But um, they're not necessarily bad medications right. if you're using them There's intermittently. A time, right. Yep, for, you know, a once in a while you're traveling or, you know, in a different situation where you need something. There's There are situations where that's, I think, reasonable. Okay, right. Yep. But um, if you're on one of these medications on a daily basis, then I would definitely think it would be a good idea to have a conversation with your clinician about that. And there's some sleep disorders where it's these medications are the treatment for those. Um, so definitely if you're seeing a sleep physician and they prescribe that, then that's something that you should discuss with them. Right. Absolutely. The safety yep. over time. Right. And uh, as always, we are not making individualized recommendations here. We're right. making generalized statements. So if you have a question or concern, please take it to your own physician to discuss in more detail. And right. so what if you have been taking uh, benzodiazepine? So that would be uh, lorazepam yeah. every night for the last 20 years. Yeah, because your talk, doctor told you to twenty years ago. Absolutely. So I these these instances do occur where people come in and they've been on it, and um, we'll have a really not, I guess, an in depth conversation, and it's not always an easy conversation about what we can do to get off the medication and to maintain or improve sleep even while we're doing that, and. So generally, I'll talk with my patients about the addictive nature of these medications, the risk for side effects. And of course, as we age, like you said before, the risk goes up um, all the time. The risk is increasing. And so I think it's good to you know, gradually lower the dose. Uh, while, while that's right. occurring, we work on sleep hygiene. Mm-hmm. I also promise people that it will probably be a rough few weeks. Right. But then there's great potential that things will get better after that, too. And if you have been on for 20 years, then you just have to do a really slow wean off of these medications. And there's a good website. It's called deprescribing.org, which you can even go to and look. They have some some planned out ways to get off these medications that you can look at yourself. 
Yeah. But always talk with the, uh, uh, your doctor if you're, you plan to do something like that. Yep. It's a great, um, great thing, though. And a lot of times if we can, like Lindsay said, if you can do the work and get good quality sleep through doing the work, it's it has better long-term results than taking the pill every night to help with sleep. The, I have had many successful attempts at weaning off and they are everybody is so glad they do in the end yes. that they get off because they, they feel like they are sleeping better actually and then that they're clearer uh in the mind uh they feel more steady on their feet so people feel like it's worth it um in the end getting off these medications right yep so um, again, there are instances where these medications are fine to use, especially if they're being used on an intermittent basis. That should always be determined by your doctor. But um, in general, for long-term use, it's not recommended. And we would recommend getting help tapering off of them right. if that's your situation. All right, so let's talk about our health pearl for this week. I think we made might have mentioned it in the in past episodes, but there's something called the blue zones that National Geographic has sent out and studied. What about seven areas mm-hmm. across the world where people live the longest and uh, remain healthy, or generally healthy throughout that lifespan? Right. So they live into their hundreds, and it's a good quality of life. And yep. so they sent a group of researchers out to these seven places to see what. What made this happen? Why are, why are they doing so well? What did they have in common and what um, what was working to help these people remain healthy and live long, productive lives? And when, one that I think we talked about last time was the Mediterranean diet. Mm-hmm. So the diet that's higher in plant proteins and fruits and vegetables and whole grains. Mm-hmm. Um, but what other things did they find in these communities? Yeah, so in these communities, I think... Um, People tend to be socially engaged, have a good support network. They're active. Mm -hmm. You know, many of them are in rural areas where they're farming or they're doing some kind of physical work on a regular basis. Cars aren't a big, right, in most of these places. They're they're on foot walking, um, but certainly not all of them. Yeah. But they just active lifestyle. Yeah, active lifestyle. In the United States, the one blue zone is at Loma Linda Mm -hmm. University and... um, they're they're uh, vegetarian. Yeah, they follow a vegetarian diet. Um, they're physically active. Right. I imagine many of them drive because they right. they're in, in the big, city. city. Yep. Um, but they again kind of fit the blue zone prototype with just um, staying active, following a healthy diet, community. Yeah, I think they all feel a strong um, connection to. There's a worth. There's yeah. more importance and worth on the older adult. Absolutely. So there's they're valued. Yep. Yep. Um, which I think is important. Yeah, but f- the great thing with these communities is these people have lower rates of dementia. They have lower rates of other chronic disease. They just tend to be healthy and really live long, productive lives. And there's several books out about the blue zones. Um, and there's. Facebook that you can follow. They there's have, yep. cookbooks. There's a bu- books about happiness because these places tend to, they have happy people. Yeah. Um, so they've studied why are they happy. Um, so just so many great material came out of these these seven zones. Right. And there is a Blue Zones website as well that you can look at. I think it's just bluezones.com. Um, they will list healthy meals and recipes 
They also, if you wanted to spend a little money and sign up, would give you create a meal plan for you based on the diet that has been successful for these populations. So lots of um, good information on their website, too. Yeah, I would check it out. All right. Does that wrap up today's? I think so. Thanks so much for the emails and the feedback coming in. We appreciate it. I actually did hear from multiple people that they wanted to hear about sleep. So this is it today. But keep it coming and let us know if there are other topics that you think would be beneficial. Right. Visit us on everythingdoc.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, everythingdoc1. And on Facebook. Yep. And um, if you're enjoying this, please share the podcast with family and friends and feel free to go on the um, podcast sites and rate and review us. It helps us out and helps other people find out about us. You can find us on Apple and Google Play. You can subscribe. All right. Get the word out and we'll next time. I don't know what we're doing. Yeah, we'll see. We'll surprise you. (laughs) Power in two weeks. Sounds good. Thanks for listening. We hope you have a great week ahead. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.